we have to break the cycle of healthcare money going away from the people that need it most, going to the communities that already have a lot of money and already have a lot of resources. I think we have proof of concept. This is why in several pieces we've written, we said, we think that they should scale the ACO effort to make it mandatory nationally. Woo, woo, woo. Hi, and welcome to the ACO Show. I'm your co-host, Brian Chaglinski, Allidade's Director of Communications and Content. Today, I'm joined by our co-founder and CEO, Dr. Farzad Mostashari, for a very special conversation on the future of Medicare. Farzad will be speaking with Dr. Rick Gilfillan, the former CEO of Trinity Health System and a former neighbor of Farzad's at HHS headquarters when Farzad served as Director of the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. Dr. Gilfillan led CMS's Innovation Center during the creation of the regulations that created the ACO program. About a decade after those regulations were finalized this past September, Dr. Gilfillan co-authored a detailed two-part piece in health affairs with former CMS Administrator Dr. Don Berwick. The piece was called Medicare Advantage, Direct Contracting, and the Medicare Money Machine on the explosive growth and valuations around Medicare Advantage, the challenges of ensuring those resources go toward better care, and detailed recommendations for CMS and Congress on how to do so. It's a piece that opened the floodgates to debate on the progress of value-based care after more than a decade of breakneck progress. In short, this is an essential conversation about the future of the Medicare program and the state of healthcare in the U.S. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Farzad to get things started. Farzad. Hey, thanks, Rick. It's so great to see you. I'm going to give a personal story of how Rick has a way of saying stuff to you that, and I think he's done it in this debate, that makes you be like, huh, wait, what? So we met, as you mentioned, we were both in the first term Obama administration, and then I became national coordinator for health IT. And Rick came and visited, and he said, so what's your, what's your mission statement? Do you remember this, Rick? No, I said that. Yeah, yeah. You're like, you got a mission statement? And I, I was like, I actually do. I do. And I was like, phew, I'm in good shape. I have a mission statement. Uh, to improve health and healthcare for all Americans through the use of health information technology. And Rick said, how about cost? <laughs> I do remember that now. <laughs> you remember that? He totally, he totally like wrong-footed me. And I was like, uh, uh, I mean, if you improve health and healthcare, then, then naturally, as water flows downhill, Rick, you will reduce cost of care. And it turns out you don't. If you want to reduce cost of care, you got to focus on reducing cost of care. It doesn't just happen as a natural side effect of improving health and healthcare. And in fact, there are many people who are making lots of money and they're not really improving health or healthcare or certainly reducing cost of care. So Rick, now it's your turn. Make fun of me. <laughs> Well, I, I, I just would start by saying, yeah, we met a long time ago, and our relationship was uh, punctuated with Q6 month calls from Farzad to our office saying, hey, why don't you help us set up a program like we did for you know adoption of, uh, of IT, only for adoption for value-based care? We could set up a, this distributed learning center and a support system for primary care docs to get, really get on board. And uh, I'd love to be able to do that. And you guys have a lot of money at the Innovation Center. Could you fund that for us? Right? I don't know. It was about every six months for three years. I think Farzad hit me with that because he, he got the total cost of care thing going. And truthfully, it was a great idea. Then we couldn't, for a variety of reasons, the authority to do that, even though it was a great idea. And then he went out and started out day to do exactly that. And so congratulations to you and your team. 
you're actually exactly right. Like the problem that I was trying to solve was that we have all these primary care practices who now they have the tools, right? We are like, oh, now you have technology, but that's not all it takes, right? In order to be able to do value-based care, you also need the coaching and you need the contracts and you need the scale and you need to aggregate the lives to be able to have a risk pool. And I was like, well, we have this publicly funded thing that's really working well, which was the regional extension center program. We'd spend a billion dollars on it. It was up and running, but the grants were coming to an end. And that was, seemed to me like the natural extension of that program. And I think if Rick Gilfillan had actually been able to spend just a billion dollars, that's all, of his public monies, we might have never started Allidate. I'm you know, it's a fun, Yeah, I know. And I don't say this as a criticism of CMS. I say it as a recognition of, you know, the realities of all businesses have, as you would say, their North Star, and they, they have the things that they do. But, you know, another example, this is patient ping. You know, the CEO there, Jay Desai, came to us and said, I'd love to set up a mechanism that would automatically notify ACOs when someone shows up in the ER, right? And, and we went to CMS and said, gee, can we use the systems to do this? And they were, a lot of it was already in place, but it just didn't fit into the priorities there. So Jay went out and started patient ping. And truth be told, we hoped through the innovation center and other activities at CMS that we would stimulate lots of private investment, value-based care, a higher value care transformation into the system. And that happened in some ways. I think, unfortunately, one of the things we're talking about today is some of that money isn't always channeled into, you know, the real value adding and value producing opportunities that, that we all know are in the system. Here, I thought I had the perfect way to, to give you a, a little bit of a left jab here, Gilson, <laughs> by saying, oh, really? So you didn't do public investments. So you, you think private investment's a good thing. Then how come, Rick Gilfillan, you are raising concerns about private businesses who are, you know, doing value-based care? There's a lot of activity in the marketplace that does not add value. It destroys value. It destroys value by increasing costs. And I, I think, you know, the irony of the piece that Don and I did was, you know, it was an emperor has no clothes piece. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew who was doing it. Everybody knew they were doing it. And I knew I was doing it when I was you know, running an MA plan, right? I knew that there was this reality that you have to increase codes, you have to get your risk score up to get premium like the other guy or the other gal, because if you don't, your your product becomes uncompetitive, right? So there's this unfortunate, non-virtuous cycle, value-destroying cycle of behavior that we have engendered through the use of the HCC-based risk adjustment process that basically drives everybody to run harder and harder to get their scores higher so they can get more rebates, yep. more premium, yep. offer better benefit, be more competitive, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And of course, right. along the way, yep. this has driven up costs dramatically in the uh, Medicare Advantage world. Yeah. And, and the other thing that it's done is it is a waste of time and effort. It, it's not only the impact that it has on the public coffers, it's also just the sheer waste of amount of time people spend doing home visits for the sole purpose of you know, adding, adding points to that HCC. So Rick, would you agree with me then that it is the job of policy, good policy creates the field wherein people trying to maximize private profit creates social good, right? And 
that like the problem isn't private profits. The problem is when policy has created the rules of the game such that if someone is only thinking about maximizing their profits, that ends up resulting in not an increase in social good, but but a decrease in social good. So yeah. is it fundamentally a problem of private profit seeking or is it fundamentally a problem of bad policy or yeah. know, policy that's not good? You know, at this point, I look at the whole thing as the system. And the answer, I think the answer to your question is it's both. It clearly is public policy and it's public policy because uh, in this instance, because we know the solution or we know a solution to the system-wide problem at least, and we can't take it because policymakers exist in a political environment, right? And that political environment is subject to influence and manipulation by the private side, right? So it's the two things combined. Congress knows a solution but can't take it. And literally in the debate on the Build Back Better bill, right, where we're talking explicitly about putting more money into social services, right? They had in front of them a pay for that is savings yeah. opportunity and Medicare advantage of somewhere between 400 and 600 billion dollars a year over the course of 10 years right that was there and they made a conscious decision not to take it because the powers that be in Medicare advantage right AHIP the plans etc basically threaten to unleash the advertising campaign to stir up seniors to worry about their benefits, right? That's an example of it's not just bad policy. It's bad policy influenced by leaders. And I would say this, mm -hmm. Farzai, you've been a leader, I've been a leader. We don't only have one fiduciary duty, I think. I think we have a duty to our institution, but we also have a duty to society. And when we know we could come together and make the marketplace better, make it produce that social good in a better way, I think we as leaders have an obligation to come forward and do that. So it's not just bad policy, it's also leaders not stepping up to be social leaders as well as business leaders. Yeah, I also think it's good business. If you wanna have a sustainable long-term business, then <clears throat> making sure that what you're doing is good for society is a competitive advantage. Particularly if you're doing, you're not inheriting a business, you're starting a business. Yeah. Uh, this is what I always advise, you know, people who wanna be startup founders is make sure that you're not exploiting some, some loophole or some arbitrage. Make sure that if, if like the policymaker wakes up tomorrow empowered and is as smart as you are and wants what's best for America, uh, that, that it's not gonna hurt your business, it's gonna help your business, right? You don't, you don't wanna go to sleep every night worrying that someone's gonna do the right thing. It's a great point. And the fact of the matter is that this whole MA arbitrage game could be ended with a very simple change in the rules, right? And oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? Really? It's really simple, Rick Gilfillan, is it? It's really simple. All right, let's talk about the solutions, <laughs> Mr. Really Simple. If I wanted to solve the Medicare part of the problem, I have the tools to do that, right? At CMS, they have the tools to actually make this happen tomorrow, right? If I just wanted to solve it broadly, I would increase the kind of discount factor we have it that CMS has to bring down everybody's risk scores by a certain amount. And I would make the whole thing neutral to me, CMS as a payer. Now that's the simple way, right? It's not quite so easy to do that because of the politics, as I said, and also because the truth is some people pursue this opportunity 
more effectively with greater resources and know-how, whatever. You have some people who have very high risk scores and you have people whose risk scores don't go up anywhere near that amount because they're not as aggressive. Uh, and by the way, I don't think, I'm not saying anyone is fraudulent in that regard. I'm saying that they're just, you know, more aggressive business people who are pursuing it. So you need to address it at that level too. And that gets a little bit more complicated. Let me just pause. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So what, what Rick said is there's a couple of problems that we're trying to solve, right? And one problem is that the taxpayer is getting screwed. And the Medicare program and cost of Medicare are higher than they should be. And Congress has placed the means to say, look, you can take everyone in the program and, and do a coding intensity factor. If you think there was 9% more than the fee-for-service comparator on the MA, you can make the adjustment 9%. But he set a statutory minimum of it has to be at least this amount. And lo and behold, CMS has never done, I think, more than that minimum statutory threshold. And you could just turn the dial more. And if, if MedPAC says there's three or 4% of extra coding revenue that's going out the door, CMS could, instead of increasing it by 6%, increase it by 10%, right? And that would solve the problem as far as the treasury is concerned. But it wouldn't solve the problem in terms of the amount of attention that's going into this because it creates a zero-sum game and you have what I call sharks and guppies swimming in the risk pool. And the sharks would be eating the guppies. The more aggressive you are and, uh, and the more you focus on, on risk coding. And I, I think this is what's actually going to happen in the direct contracting program. And much of what you've been talking about, Rick, has been Medicare Advantage. The Medicare Shared Savings Program does not have the same you know, uncontrolled risk adjustment opportunities. And they've tried very hard not to have those opportunities present in direct contracting either, even though we've seen some companies who are very successful in MA say, oh yeah, direct contracting has MA-like economics. All right, I'm going to give another Rick Gilfillan story, this time when we were, I think we were both private sector at that time. This is 2015, probably, 2016. He came to visit me in our, in our like, makeshift offices when we just started Allidate a couple of years in and, and he was running a really big national hospital system. Right, Rick? Yep. And, and Rick said to me, him, and he was like, so what are you doing? And I said, well, we're going to take risk. And he said, are you doing MA? And I said, well, you know, not yet, but I think we will uh, eventually, as we are now. And he looked at me and he said, risk adjustment is Gollum's ring. I was like, whoa, that is deep, right? Because like, I, I happen to be a, like a nerd, you know, Tolkien fan. And it just the description of how it just corrupts imperceptibly. And you put it on and you feel good, you know? And, and, and then you can't take it off again. And it creates this addiction. That was really influential to me, Rick. And when we started Allidate, I'm really glad actually that we did not have any opportunity, zero. We had, not only did we have opportunity, but like the only thing risk adjustment could do for you in the Medicare Shared Savings Program was to hurt you. Because yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was capped at zero, 
like they didn't even acknowledge that sometimes you held on to sicker patients and, and your population changed. And so we had to, at Allidade, figure out how to reduce, actually reduce utilization, actually reduce ER visits and hospitalizations and the days away from home in skilled nursing facilities. So talk to me, Rick, you and, and Don both were, were originators of, of designers of the ACO program. One of the things that I'm struck by is how easy it is to change this message that you're talking about, about Medicare advantage of this particular arbitrage, and to conclude, and I think, I, I fear, let me just be clear, I fear that some will conclude, oh, this whole value-based care stuff is all a travesty or, or like there's no value or whatever. So talk to me about the, the essential question of risk adjustment, MA, and then ACOs, and how does that fit in, in your view, into value-based care more broadly? First, a disclaimer, you know, people associate me more with the ACO regs than I warrant. To be honest, you know, I, I was my original job at CMS, but then when I went to the Innovation Center, a great team led by John Pilot, you know, took over that. And uh, so I was one voice sitting yeah. at the table, but they were the team that really put all that together and, and did a, a fabulous job and continue to do a fabulous job at, at running that program. So, you know, and I will tell you this, the first day I went to CMS, we, I went to the first, you know, meeting of our, of our team that was actually starting to write the regs and sat there and, you know, there were like, I don't know, 25 people around this big table, right? I had no idea how you did regs or what a reg was. And um, I went in there with one thought in mind. The one thing we're not going to do in ACOs is actually open the door to crazy risk adjustment. Because I had just come from Geisinger. And frankly, you know, in the Geisinger health plan, I became aware of that. And you had to do it. And we did it. You know, when we, we were good, I like to think, good effective business people. We did it legitimately, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we, we did it. And when I came to CMS, I, 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 one thing I said at that first meeting was, we're not doing that. And over time, of course, that became what, what you described as the, uh, the limited risk-adjusting capability in, uh, in ACOs. But the truth is, here's the way I think about medical costs, right? I mean, risk-adjusting, assume there's a, there's a good way to do risk-adjusting. You need to do risk-adjusting to, to compensate people. And, you know, I, I, we've talked about this. I can imagine some different ways of doing it, right? So there's that, right? Then there's the question of, like, you know, can you manage the total cost of care? And how much, it's an open question. How much can you manage the total cost of care in Medicare, right? How much can you, the most, the world's most efficient delivery system, what can it produce in Medicare versus fee-for-service, right? I'm in that space a lot, thinking about that and have been for a long time. Um, and that's why I was thinking about when I saw you that in your office that day. And here's what I do. I think about Kaiser, right? I look at Kaiser as, you know, the most integrated, I'm talking about their delivery system. I'll leave aside their risk coding yeah. or whatever. Yeah, their delivery system, right? What can they do? They can redesign care. I think they can get about 30, maybe 35% total costs out of the system in a traditional way, but they reinvest a bunch of that into different things, right? So net-net, I think they, I want to say they get around 20% delta versus people's service by, by truly redesigning care. Their care assets- That's my number, too. capital case is different. That's my right? number, 20%, yep. You, you think 20% is a good number? Yep. That's, you know, net-net of everything, right? You can say their utilization is lower, but they're also build these big buildings we see around the city here, right? For outpatient care. So let's say it's 20%. So then the question, and the question on day one with ACOs was, how much can you get in a fee-for-service world, in a full choice, no referral control, 
no limits. The question for the ACOs was how much of that 20% can you deliver, right? And what I say now, and this is quite honestly what I say, and by the way, there, I mean, I admire Aldate, I admire your work. I have to be a little non, you know, impartial. There are several other organizations that have done similar great, great things and, and are adding value. And I think that's great. I use your guys and I say, well, I think we've demonstrated that people can consistently get to maybe 11, maybe at, at the extreme 15%, right? To really managing, doing all the things you're doing, right? Now, is there a little bit of physician selection bias in that somewhere? Probably, there may be, I don't know how much, you know, where the network, maybe, I don't know. And I'm not talking about you, but in general. So let's say theoretically, you can get to 10 to 12% of the savings that Kaiser can get 20%, right? So that, that's real and that produces real value. And by the way, quality improving, I believe clearly better career coordination, fewer admissions, yep. fewer ERs, better you know, quality metrics, although we've done a terrible job with quality metrics. I think we have proof of concept. This is why in several pieces we've written, we said, we think that they should scale the ACO effort to make it mandatory nationally because we've got proof of concept. Woo, 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 Forget woo. about that, you know, you know, oh, I got to prove that it's going to save money. I mean, we've proven that it will. But we only have a voluntary test. And when we add up everybody across the voluntary population, what does that average up to? Well, maybe one or 2% savings, right? Well, you know, if you in 1984 said to hospitals, hey, we got a great idea. We're going to have a voluntary DRG program. Want to play? Right? What do you think the reduction in length of stay would have been, you know, over the next 15 years? It would not have been the 50% that ultimately happened, right? It wouldn't happen. You got, so we have proof of, proof of concept. We know people can do it. We should be making a, re, a requirement that everybody participates in an accountable care organization. And I believe with that, we would see real value. By the way, we've seen the lowest rate of increase in people service medical costs, you know, in history over the last 10 years, right? For a variety of reasons, but I believe ACOs are a big part of it. I so too. I think we have proof of concept. I think we should be scaling. I think we should use the authority of CMMI to scale this program nationally. Now that's easy to, for me to say and hard to do, but I think that's where we are. And I think you've proven it. The danger is all those ACOs turn their head to the side and say, wait a minute, I'm getting, you know, two, three, four, 5% shared savings. And, you know, these guys have got, you know, 10% dropping through from risk coding on the MA side. I think I need to be in the MA business, right? It's going to be increasingly hard, I think, for folks to actually stick with the ACO uh, well, effort, unless well, we give them better better models that have more shared savings, and yeah. uh, maybe ultimately, I think capitation, full capitation. Yeah, I, I think that what we can do is we can level the playing field, right? So there are certain things that that you touched on that are tools that are available in MA and capitated models like direct contracting that aren't available in the ACO program and they should just, you should use Medicare Shared Savings Program as a platform and bring those in. So why not have a 100% model with a discount? Why not be able to partially capitate the, the payments on the Medicare Shared Savings Program side? And so I can have affiliates that agree to, and we've done indeed, there are ACO models like that, like the next gen model that allowed for that, where you could pay affiliates, you know, maybe a lab is willing to do it for 95 cents on the dollar. And so that creates more downstream influence or subcapping specialists or creating beneficiary incentives so that if a beneficiary goes to see a ACO primary care provider or an ACO specialist, they don't have to pay their copay. Those are all things that you, know, you can do as ways of 
getting more influence on cost of care and MA and captive models that you can't do in MSSP. But let's 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 level the playing field in my view. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think all SSP should have all waivers that are available. There's no, no point in not giving everybody, we should be doing everything we can to make all of them successful. Yeah. Right. Not just the ones who quote willing to take risk. And then as as we learn from Kaiser at the margin, right? Or not the, at the extreme, at the limit, right? To take care redesign to the limit, you, you need a cap check. You need a full cap check or yeah. close to it, right? Yeah. To re, to really redesign care. And so yeah. the AC, I, our recommendation is that CMMI should work with the SSP program <clears throat> to use both powers to create a full cap Love it. Um, style opportunity for advanced ACOs to really go at it and really, really significantly redesign yep. care. We, we are 100% on board with that. The yep. one thing I'll, I'll, I'll disagree, and it's so darn hard disagreeing with you, Rick Gilfillan, is if you're running an ACO program successfully and you're really creating savings, you, I don't think it's taking you away for you to go to MA because really what we're serving are the practices and the practices have patients, some of whom have chosen to stay in traditional Medicare and some of whom have chosen to go to MA. That practice should be able to treat all of them with the new model of care and be able to get claims data and to be able to assume risk on that entire population. So I don't see it as a bad thing at all for those who've been successful on the ACO side to, as you said, turn their head and look at the MA side. It's not to the exclusion of taking risk on commercial or traditional Medicare or others. What I do find interesting, however, is, and, and we and I talked about this as kind of an acid test, is groups who are doing Medicare Advantage who say that their model creates, you know, reduces hospitalizations by some say 50%, 50%. Yeah. Uh, isn't that awesome? 50% yeah. reduction in hospitalizations. Uh, yeah. But the practice model only works in Medicare Advantage. Medicare Advantage, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, the truth is that, you know, they mark up the days per thousand using their risk score as a markup right? And then they compare their actual numbers to that. And so, so that they create a false target and, and their net 50% decrease is actually a mirage, but uh, it's all gross down, if you will, from yeah. their uh, marking up using their risk score, I believe. So, you know, we had a discussion about whether, is there a, the baby in the bathwater, right? And, and, yeah. and we said like, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And Rick said, well, I mean, how much, how much, how much baby is there and how much bathwater? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Define each. <laughs> I, I think we may disagree. I think that there is, and, and we looked at some of this, the switchers analysis of people yeah. who, who were on Medicare. And then you follow that very same human being, right? One year they're in traditional Medicare, the next year they're in MA. And you say, what happened to their risk scores? Well, it went up, I don't know, 15%. What happened to their hospital utilization, their ER utilization, that, that human being. And there is a there is a real benefit even in those MA models. So are you afraid, Rick Gilfillan, that if your policy prescriptions come true, you are going to throw out babies with the bathwater? If some of these models are no longer economically viable yeah. and patients don't get the benefits of MA risk-taking models. Yeah. Well, I think, I, I mean, I think any solution is going to have to take in, and just politically and, and it makes sense from a human standpoint that you're not going to suddenly jerk all the extra benefits or, you know, increase premiums 
on the MA population. I don't think you can do that. And I don't think we will do that. We've recommended a gradual change so that, that doesn't happen. Are there real medical management impacts in the MA world, right? Let's, let's parse it a little bit. I already talked about Kaiser. I believe there are for Kaiser, right? Let's talk about some of the other you know, group practices that have good care models. I think there probably is a decrease in utilization and probably some improvement in quality. Although I must say, I, ran, I actually have helped start and run five different MA plans. And I have to confess, I am disappointed in looking back on what we're able to accomplish on the quality front. You know, we, we should, and I had much greater hopes for more there. I do think that there are, are some plans that make a difference in lower utilization. I believe that's true. However, I also sat at Trinity and reviewed denied claims from the big national MA plans, right? 20% rate of denials or downgrades to quote observation space, right? And that's built into their data. Every time you look at that data, you have to know that the inpatient claims are 20% lower because they denied the care, not to the patient, they just said to the provider, we ain't paying that. And I, oh, I and that's because that's because your hospitals never, ever admitted someone who didn't need to be admitted. I'm sure they did, right? And I and I but I'll tell you what I did. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what I did. I got on the phone with one of our medical directors in Western Michigan, right? And I reviewed the cases because I start, <laughs> I have an institute you are from independent school cars, man. And he was in literally, this is serious now, he was in tears. And he was in tears because he was professionally offended by the unprincipled opportunistic denial processes that were in place at large national insurers. Did we sometimes have someone admitted that was unnecessary? Sure, I'm sure we did. Did we systematically, you know, unnecessarily admit people with uh, MIs for three days, right? Thinking that they really should have been sent home after 24 hours? We didn't, you know, we didn't do that, but we did have those cases denied by, um, all right, we're not going to get into we're not going into overcoding when it comes to sepsis. All right, that'll be no, no, no. That's a, that's a fair question. That's a fair question. Yeah, all there, right. There's a whole yeah. Happy to have that. It's a it's a, there are other money machines. <laughs> that's another emperor. That's a that's a different emperor has no closed health affairs article written to be written. Yeah, about right. How health right. systems are are, that, that are jacking one, up coding. That one should come, but you know what we're not doing in health. What health systems are not doing? Uh, they're not paying dividends. They're not taking money out of the system. Oh, come on. They could do a they're, better they're, job. They're not, where they not some of those nonprofits are the worst. At what? At maximizing nonprofits, at having retained earnings that they that they feed back into whether it's salary compensation or more marble that then has to be, you know, maintained at, at being wasteful, oh, at, I'm being having that avaricious, at being no. anti-competitive. Well, at, at, at squeezing their employees when, you know, when they could afford, right? At all of that, Rick, at all of that. Well, different conversation not. about nonprofits, happy to have it. I think at the end of the day, I, I, I believe that many of them are doing great work. The vast majority of them don't operate in the manner you just described because they don't have the market power to do it. But there are mm -hmm. some that have market power that, Frankly, yes, are making more than they need to and aren't using their resources to the benefit of their community. That's let's circle back to the solution. All right. So yeah. you, you talked about one solution was was just jack up the, the coding intensity factor. What, what what else you got? Well, I think you know, Don and I have been talking with folks and you know, and you've contributed to this as well. Like I think we're kind of thinking about something like we'd like to look at at least four tiers. 
of, of thing, four, four elements, if you would, to get at good risk coding. This one question is transition. How do you get to a better place, right? And we think that needs to be done somewhat gradually uh, so that you don't have the disruption and benefits and yep. doing, as we talked and, about. And I think it's important actually, just to, just to note that Rick, you're saying we do have to be able to get to the point where we have global payments, global budgets and capitation. And if you do wanna have that, you have to pay more for some people than other people, otherwise they'll be lemon dropping, right? I mean, this I think is important to acknowledge, you're saying we have to have a method for risk adjustment. Yes, and I, I do wanna be clear about one other thing too, which has been, maybe you, you kind of asked this before. We still believe, I think Don and I both still believe that doing alternative payment models, ACOs, Vibus payment, it is the way to go. We need to go there. We need to find the right way to do it. And we think, as, we've, as I've said, we need to scale it. But you do need an ability to, to adjust payment, I would say almost for populations mm -hmm. rather than for individuals, right? And you build that up from individuals, but it has to be some of both. There need to be elements in both because the truth is that, you know, the individual level, the, the correlation of your prediction with, you know, actual expenses is not very good, right? So we said, you know, four things, right? One, there's the simple demographics, right? That's, that's something that should be looked at. Two, your suggestion, I think, has been a good one, that we should think about actually going out and asking people about their health status and building that into an evaluation. Three, I think there's probably some room for some codes that we need to think about that are not manipulable and that might add value in an overall score. But we also think like a what? real big- what's, what's not manipulable? What do cancer, you extreme cancer diagnoses that, you know, and I, I don't want to go into the specific ones necessarily. I haven't thought about it that much, but we think there are probably some codes like that where it makes sense going to your point about people being dropped, right? But the truth is, by the way, lemon dropping occurs anyway. Why are there no national cancer systems, uh, hospitals included in MA networks, right? That in effect ends up doing the same thing. Uh, but I think uh, the big thing that we want to uh, actually learn more about and build into Sorry, the other trick, the other trick they use, Rick, is the Part D formulas. Yeah. Right. So if you don't have a formula that includes the drugs that that people who are very expensive tend to need, then then that may affect who you get. Good point. The other piece we want to add, though, is we don't know. And then we all, we all know that there's great health inequities. There's health care inequities. There's, you know. Money does not flow to the places that need it most. It flows in the opposite direction, as is usually the case in America. You know, the rich do get richer. And we think that looking at indices of community status vis-a-vis -vis mm -hmm. the social determinants of health uh, would be, could be useful in calculating risk scores. So we're currently investigating the use of things like- Can I just pause on that one? I really yeah. like that one because I think it can also be a, a, a pro-health equity move. Uh, I think it was Maluf Obermeyer. They published a paper where they found that HCC scores and, and risk models underweighted minority populations because they were low. It was a, it's predicting costs. It's not predicting need. And uh -huh. if a minority population has less access to healthcare services, they're going to be lower cost. And that's not a good thing <laughs> that we want to perpetuate. And so I think that could be, and, and you know, look, one of the things that the, some of the, the MA players are doing, right, is that they're going to primary care deserts and inner cities 
and they are offering people a better alternative than traditional Medicare in Medicare Advantage with a lot of perks that they can afford to do because of the risk adjustment for sure, but they are adding a valuable service. And I think it's a little bit maybe overblown in terms of the actual numbers of how much, for example, in direct contracting is coming from, you know, population inner city or, or minority populations. But I like your suggestion because it says, oh yeah, well, great, do more of that. Yeah, right, <laughs> we'll exactly. give you, right. Yeah, and so we're looking at the area deprivation index, which is a well-established metric. We're also looking at something called a childhood deprivation index, which looks at neighborhoods vis-a-vis key indicators for children's health. So anyway, I think those are, we're, we're actually, there's a real interest in this, and this work is going on. Uh, Bob Phillips at the uh, American Family Practice Foundation actually has done some work in this space and is working with a variety of folks on this. And I think, you know, Mark McCall and the folks at Duke, I think you may be involved in that far as I to go to start looking at this as well. So there's work going on to look for another uh, approach. I know there's interest at CMS in exploring alternative approaches. We need a model to do it. You know, we, we have to break the cycle of healthcare money going away from the people that need it most, going to the communities that already have a lot of money and already have a lot of resources, right? The whole commercial pricing world is one that drives money out of vulnerable communities and into uh, well-to-do communities. All right, gosh darn, it's so hard to pick a fight with this man. Uh, let me try to pick another fight. You have said that we shouldn't do, pers- that, that health plans, MA plans should not do percent of premium deals with providers. I disagree. I think, I think we, we do that. And, and I think it's actually one of the most sustainable kinds of contracts that we have because you don't get constantly ratcheted downwards if you create savings the way some of our commercial arrangements do. So, so Rick, what, what is the, you know, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Well, the, uh, the issue is not necessarily the percentage of premium contract. It's the union of percentage of premium contracts with risk score-based reimbursement uh, in Medicare Advantage, right? Because okay. what you do is basically it creates, this is the money machine. It's a, you know, it's a wonderful thing if you're running a primary care practice or a physician group or whatever, and you're, you're working with an MA plan, they give you a contract and say, we'll base your medical expense target on 85% of premium. And you say, well, what's my premium? They say, well, it's $1,000 PM, PM, you know? But gee, if your risk score goes up to, you know, 1.1, your premium will be $100 more. And guess what? $100 more will drop right through to your bottom line. What do you think? Well, I'll take $15 of it. Sorry, I'm the, uh, I'm the uh, MA plan, right? Because it'll be profit for me too. So uh, it's the conjunction of those two that is the problem. And that's why- Oh, and is it so problem. terrible for primary care to make some money? For God's sake, Gil Fillin, I'm kidding. Yeah, well, ordinarily primary care gets, you know, ballpark $40 PM, PM. You know, sure. Should they get more? Yes, they should. I'm a family doc by background. I'm in favor of that. Should they get maybe another 20 or $40 PM, PM? Okay. What does the website for Humana say they are getting? $250. None of our docs are getting that, buddy. Yeah. Okay. So this is the pernicious effect. This is the golem's ring, right? You put this on, you say, oh, really? That's the deal? Guess what? I'm going to get those scores up. And I, I suspect, I believe you will find that the highest risk scores occur in practices that are operating under those money machine contracts. And then the third 
side of the, or the, uh, the next step up, I should say, is, well, if I'm an insurer, right, and, and $200 PMPM, gee, as an insurer, what am I making? Five, seven percent? I'm getting $50, seven. Why am I giving all that money to the provider? I'll just own the provider. So they go out, and this is the you know United Optum mm. strategy. They just go out and buy the provider. And what is their profit now? $250 PMPM plus, you know, their potentially their insurance premium, right? So we, our calculations suggest that when the insurer owns the whole deal, they may be running loss ratios in the range of 75 to 70%, maybe even lower. But again, the, the core of the problem you're trying to solve is that you have gameable vet revenue. That's yes. the, yeah. And, and if you didn't have that, then, then I, I think having arrangements. Yeah, I yeah. think I'd be okay. I think, I think, I mean, I, I, way before, you know, risk scores, we did percentage of premium contracts in Philadelphia, New Jersey. And yeah. Something. And that was a normal way of adjusting, as you said. And I agree, by the way, one of the faults of the ACO program is rebasing right? Yeah. You just can't, we've got to get away from that in the APM business. I believe we have to get away from the notion that we're going to suck all the savings out. We need to, we need to have CMS recognize they, they, they'll well, do CMS well. is the best. Uh, it's the commercial, the commercial payers are much worse than CMS in terms oh, really? of the rebasing. Oh yeah. On the rebasing? On the rebasing. Uh, not, not MA, not MA, but, but self-insured. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, the CMS rebasing, commercial. I believe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we can disagree on this. You think CMS should stop rebasing or not? I, I think it's fine. I think that the, the really? approach that okay. they have now, blending in blend. a bonus, a regional efficiency bonus, plus historical benchmark that are reset every five years is fine. I, yeah. I, you know, I, I don't have a problem with it. We may disagree with that, but, but my point is that I, I think that we should leave the money in the system so that people can have a predictable savings opportunity yep. that they can use to fund their investments, et cetera, and make a little yep. effort. So that's, I'm, I'm in favor of that. And I'm not against percentage of premium contracts per se. It is their relationship. So I hate to wrap up such an insightful and lively conversation. And I always hate to stop Farzad when he's looking to pick fights with people who mostly agree with him. But I think we need to follow up this two-piece uh, health affairs piece with a two-piece ACO show at some point. So Dr. Gilfillan, we'll have to have you back on sometime. But we so appreciate your time for joining us. And Farzad, thank you for, for making the time today. Thanks very much, Brian. Thanks, Thank Brian. you, Farzad. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Congratulations on all you guys accomplished. This episode of the ACO Show was produced by Leanne Priady, Dan Ablin, and Alana Coogan. Our theme music is by Greg Berry. You can find previous episodes on our website, alladay.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.